So Jay, what's up with this Glorian the Shaper of Dreams, dude? Miles, uh, that is a lot of question. Well, I mean, he can make dreams come true, right? So how does that work? Is he some kind of elemental force? Some kind of god? No, at least not originally. He was a kid named Thomas Gideon who was the son of Gregory Gideon, a minor Fantastic Four villain. Uh, okay, so what was Gregory's deal? Well, first he decided to trap the Fantastic Four in the past to impress some of his business competitors. How did that go? About as well as you'd expect. Oh, and then later on, he kidnapped most of them in hopes of using them to get... Ransom. A cure for cancer. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 389 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to some more time spent just on the cusp of Operation Zero Tolerance. Something that I hadn't really realized about this story is that its intro is like as long as the story itself, like it's unofficial issues that lead into it. Because all of the issues we're going to be talking about today, all of the Generation X issues, are very directly related to the start of OZT, but they're not technically chapters of Operation Zero Tolerance. So, is that a long prologue, or is it a misnamed first chapter? You know, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, certainly with, I'm going to go back to Inferno, of course— we had a number of stories leading directly to each of the different plot elements of Inferno. But that was Chris Claremont pacing, where you had all of those braided together, long, long, long story threads, so it kind of made sense that there was that much build-up and that much foreshadowing. Right, whereas Operation Zero Tolerance, I mean, certainly it draws from all of the various events that have led to the increased anti-mutant sentiment of this era, but in terms of the OZT-specific stuff, which is to say Bastion and the organization itself, Operation Zero Tolerance, like, that stuff, we've seen a great deal of it, but it really is tied only to this crossover. So today we're going to be looking at three issues of Generation X, and to do that, uh, we should probably look at what came before in the same title. Generation X? More like Generation X! I mean, like, but spelled E-X, because they're, they're former. Uh, okay, so that works less well in an audio format. But it is apt, because things have been going very badly for the Xavier School's next generation of mutants. Alright, so this Xavier School is run by two headmasters, neither of whom is Charles Xavier. We Specifically, we've got former X-Man Banshee and former White Queen of the Hellfire Club, Emma Frost. Banshee's cousin, Black Tom Cassidy, noted shillelagh wielder and plant power user, recently attacked the school with his minion, Mondo, who had apparently been a plant-based artificial being the whole time he'd been at the school? There is an actual Mondo who's a real person who just isn't the one who was at the school. Uh, yeah, we'll meet him later, and he will be very confused at who all of these Generation X kids are because he's never actually met them. Now, the team was ultimately able to defeat Black Tom, but not without a very steep cost. Emma Frost, under Black Tom's floral control, telepathically forced Banshee to kill her. And the big chunk of plant matter on which Black Tom had imprisoned most of the students somehow drifted off to sea, despite the fact that as far as I know, the Xavier School is landbound. Uh, you know, these things happen. The younger students, Artie, Leech, and Franklin Richards, escaped into the Daydreamers miniseries, which, you know, okay, I guess that part's not so bad. Worse, though, is Jubilee, who was captured mid-chaos by none other than Bastion. Yeah, the Bastion we just mentioned, who runs the international anti-mutant organization Operation Zero Tolerance that's been targeting mutants viciously and effectively. So, uh, you know, that's not great. Which brings us to Generation X, number 26, Adrift. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Bennett, inked by Joe Pimentel, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Ooh, so Joe Bennett, that's a name we've heard um, in some less great contexts lately. Joe Bennett did most of the art on Al Ewing's superlative Immortal Hulk series that ended somewhat recently. Um, that series was incredible. Bennett's art was incredible, unfortunately. Less incredible was the anti-Semitic imagery that he uh, included in it. 
Yeah, and it came out that he had a history that sort of lined up with that stuff. So, um, boo for that, but uh, the art's pretty good here, even if it's not as good as it is in Immortal Hulk, so at least there's that. Yay? Yup. The cover, though, is not Joe Bennett. The cover is Chris Pacello, and I love it. It's an image you may have seen. It's a very popular image of Jubilee. It's her in a baggy t-shirt that I think is supposed to be a hospital gown, holding a giant X-Force-style gun, and draped in a ridiculously long ammunition belt. She's, like, staring determinedly at the viewer and blowing a bubble of bubblegum. It is the perfect Jubilee being badass while still very much being Jubilee image. But we'll get back to Jubilee shortly, because this has three intersecting plot lines, and the first one follows the kids on the floating island of vegetation. Yeah, yeah, and the first page of that is such a contrast from the cover, uh, in part because it's a different artist, but in part because of its content and style. It's this close-up on Husk's face, and it is terrifying. Her eyes are rolled back, she's covered in sweat and grime, and half her face is ripped away to reveal black stone underneath. I mean, that's her power, her skin gets ripped away, but just to see her so out of it, to see her looking almost dead, close up like that, in Bennett's relatively realistic style, chilling. Only one of the kids on the raft currently is conscious, and that's Chamber. Also with them are M, Skin, and Sink. It's not great that they're adrift in the middle of nowhere. It's not great that most of them are unconscious, possibly dying. Like, in a situation like this, you can die of exposure. As any freelance artist knows. Oh, nice. Thankfully, M wakes up and remembers her lessons from the Xavier School as she rips both visible layers off of Husk's face, the standard human girl skin and the rocky stuff underneath. She reminds Chamber that metamorphs are prone to shock when they're stuck between states. And I love this. I love that the kids at the Xavier School would not just learn, you know, the three R's and stuff. They would also learn mutant-specific stuff that would be very relevant, both in terms of theory and in terms of practice, to mutant culture, mutant history, their own lives. Uh, Jay, do you remember that uh, class curriculum from the end of Wolverine and the X-Men Volume 1? Yeah, I, I, as I recall, that, that took the concept to and past its logical conclusion with subjects like outer space survival skills. Okay, reasonable. Future history 101, again, reasonable given the X-Men. But also, flying into things headfirst. Uh, yeah, I think that one was taught by Cannonball. Seems reasonable. I love it. Wolverine and the X-Men, uh, the Jason Aaron run especially, is just a delight. It's goofy, but it's also very heartfelt. But it is genuinely funny, like, a lot of the time. Yeah, it's a really, really fun series. It's one that I actively miss, tonally. For real. And which actually also had Pacello on art. Oh, yeah. Well, what's less of a delight is, uh, what's happening to Skin on this floating vegetable raft. He's, um, kind of melting. Like, he's unconscious, so he can't control his skin, and the heat is also really messing him up. And it's going to sunburn him, you know, much more thoroughly than it would most people, because lots of skin. This time, M makes the wrong call. She tries to squeeze him back together, and it, uh, doesn't go great, as the narration tells us. His scream tears through the din of the crashing waves, like the sound of razors shredding gravel. It's a, it's a hell of a metaphor. Whoa. Except that razors shredding gravel, because the gravel's already in small stones, would just sort of make a sort of gentle sound. Oh, well, that's much less scary. Maybe it actually wasn't that bad and Skin was just sort of sighing at how seldom someone plays with his skin like that, I guess. Doesn't quite seem like the intent based on the image. Yeah, probably not. And anyway, the description sounds cool. You just can't think about it too much, apparently. This time, Chambers got an idea. He blasts off part of the raft, uses a sun shield for Skin, which unfortunately makes the raft start to break up a little. And it's at this point that M freaks out, just flying into the sky, flying around at random, far away to try to get in psychic range of help. And this is weird for M. you know, normally she's very cool and calm and collected. But as Chamber points out, she's acting like a little kid. Yeah, uh, more on that later, and if you've been paying attention to a lot of our discussion here, you know what's up there. Namely, she is in fact two little kids at this point, standing on each other's shoulders in one body. Exactly. Husk takes her turn to wake up, and, uh, doesn't appreciate Chamber immediately telling her to relax and get more rest and calling her sunshine. Well, and assuring her that everything's fine. I may not look like a mutant, and maybe life hasn't been quite so harsh to me, 
but I've seen my share of pain, and I've come through it the same way you have. I'm not a little girl who needs to be coddled. I have just as much right to be a part of this team as you do. If we're going to die here, now, it's going to be as equals. Got it? I should note here that this is not her accent being omitted in, in our rendition, but her accent being omitted in the text. And there are little bits, like, I mean, there's a to be, T apostrophe B-E, but that's the thing. Husk, her accent comes and goes. It tends to come more when she's freaking out, but this seems to be more of a feeling of righteous indignation, of Husk very much being herself and defending her own identity. So it kind of makes sense that she'd be a little bit more deliberate about the way her speech is coming off. Or maybe Lobdell just messed it up. One of those. Either way, before we can establish that conclusively, M crashes down from the sky with the news that there's nowhere nearby and all she found is that they're all going to die here. So that's not great. Let's go to something else not great, which is the headmasters of the school. Well, headmaster of the school. Because like we said, as far as we know, in Generation X number 25, Banshee Sonic screamed Emma to death. And he's sitting there in sick bay at the school mourning her. It's okay, though. She's fine. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, just as he promises her corpse he's going to go save the kids with penance in tow, she uh, wakes up and is greeted by Nightmare, the Lord of Nightmares. We've seen him here and there before. He showed up in Emma's salad at one point to give her a dire warning. He gave her another dire warning about things that were coming that appear to have been uh, showing the events of Generation X number 25. He's been just sort of, like, bugging her with these premonitions in hopes that she'll help him fight his sister. Uh, she doesn't. Yeah, as far as we can tell, he's he just shows up here to say, I told you so, and be a brief diversion. Yup. Uh, Banshee is thrilled when Emma shows up wearing a Gen X trainee uniform, albeit a Gen X trainee uniform accidentally colored black instead of the usual red and yellow. Uh, he's also confused, because, you know, he did kill her. No, no, she controlled him so that he screamed at just the right frequency to stun her, and then she telepathically slowed her breathing and heart just enough to play dead? I buy it. I actually buy it. We've seen her take over Iceman and use his powers in ways he never could, which, to be fair, is like the hobby of half the villains of the Marvel Universe. But this is a thing she's capable of doing. She's very manipulative. She's good at lying and keeping secrets. She knows Banshee very, very well. Like, I could see her doing all of that. Also, Black Tom, great villain, not necessarily the sharpest crayon in the box. The school's computer cannot find the kids, but Emma knows in her heart that they're alive. And that's because she remembers when the Hellions died, and she remembers what that felt like. Yeah. And so she, she knows these kids are, are still alive. The Generation X series keeps coming back to Emma's loss of the Hellions, and it works every time. As much as I disagree with that entire event, like, the Hellions, who I love, were all killed just to show that Trevor Fitzroy was a badass way Trevor back in the day. Trevor fucking Fitzroy, too. Trevor like, fucking Fitzroy. What a lousy way to go out. At least it could have been a cool villain, but... Given that that is a part of continuity, that they have largely stayed dead, barring the occasional resurrection, that makes perfect sense. If Emma's going to be a headmaster again, yeah, have that come up all the time. Have that be something that softens her uh, and allows her to connect with Banshee a little bit more when it comes up. Especially this, well, not exactly immediately, but this relatively soon afterwards. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, who knows what the timeline of comics actually is? We'll hear about events from the 70s and it'll say months ago sometimes. Right, but this is this is definitively the first group of students she's mentored since the Hellions. Yes, yes, very much so. There will be more. Sometimes it'll go better than others. Usually it won't go as badly as it did with the Hellions. At least there's that. Usually. Speaking of things that are going bad, which I feel like could be the segue to literally any part of any of these issues today. I mean, I feel like that covers this event in general. Things just keep getting worse. Oh, Operation Zero Tolerance is terrible for the X-Men. It's just awful. It's awful at this point for Jubilee. We open in Medius Bract as she jumps through an exploded wall and zaps the crap out of a couple of guards. And Jubilee... She looks different. We're used to seeing her in that yellow trench coat or in some very casual clothes or whatever. She's just in a green hospital gown with her hair buzzed really, really short. She'd been growing it out for the entire Gen X series, and now it's gone. It looks fantastic, though. It does look really good. Yeah, that's true. 
But what happened, apparently, we find out, is that she woke up in a panic, and her fireworks powers went freaking nuclear. Like, these guards are severely injured. At least one of them appears to be actively dying. Remember, Jubilee is capable of immense destruction when she lets loose, which is usually when she's emotionally out of control. Well, like, you might be after waking up suddenly after being kidnapped and having your head shaved. She says as much as she reacts to the situation. Don't try and make me feel bad. It wasn't my idea to be kidnapped. Next time, get a job at the mall. Ugh, who am I kidding? And she starts giving the most badly hurt guard CPR because, yeah, that's Jubilee. I mean, she... She's terrified, she's furious, but she's also a very human character. This is the character that ran around with Wolverine for ages as, at times, essentially his conscience. She is an extremely good kid. She is an extremely good kid. I love Jubilee. Like, I talk to people who aren't Jubilee fans. Typically, they have only experienced her, or mostly experienced her, or even just first experienced her, through the 90s cartoon. And, you know, she's the somewhat annoying kid character, fair enough, but... It's the Cyclops problem. It's the Cyclops problem. He also does not fare well in that cartoon. He just basically tells Wolverine to stand down and yells Gene a lot, and that's mostly it. He occasionally just prevents people from having fun, like, other in other ways as well. Yeah, Cartoon Cyclops kind of sucks. I love the guy, but he kind of sucks. Cartoon Cyclops totally sucks. I'm actually really curious how they're going to handle that in the new um, X-Men 97 cartoon, like, the revival. Whether they're going to lean on those very cartoon versions of the characters or flesh them out a little. Like, I think I'm okay with it either way, but I'm very curious. Well, it was ironic because the comics in 97 were so much being written with the versions of the characters from the cartoon. A lot of the time, yeah. There was a lot of give and take, a lot of back and forth, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous. Would you say that that, those characterizations really tied the decade together? Exactly. The CPR apparently works because the guard does wake up and asks what the hell she did to him, calls her a filthy mutie, and then other guards show up and try to kill her. She does manage to escape through a sewer grate, but falls out the other side hard enough to knock her out and is carried right back in. And we should note, as usual, we are sort of consolidating each of the plot lines into one telling per issue, but that happens after it's been a number of pages in a different plot line, so you really have it in your head, oh, Jubilee got out, awesome, she escaped. It's only at the very end of the issue that she's right back in that facility. Wah, wah. And Bastion, who is watching on, on the inevitable villain monitor bank, is fascinated by this that she risked her life to save somebody who would try to end hers. He just he just does not get it. It's a really common trope in superhero comics that the villains are confused, that the good guys are, like, being actively good guys to that level. With Bastion, though, it kind of works. I mean, we're going to find out much more about him. Spoiler, he's not human. He's constructed, kind of. It's very complicated. So I think I'm more okay with that with him than I would be with, like, another random villain who's just a jerk and is surprised by other people not being jerks. Likewise, I was going to say, with a lot of villains, it's it's a trope that reinforces what we know. With Bastion, given what we will learn, it comes across, in retrospect, more as characterization. Yeah, yeah, Bastion's not a bad villain. I mean, he's totally a villain. He has, like, almost zero redeeming characteristics. He's a bad person. Point. He's a very bad person. Uh, but he's a good villain. I, I like Bastion as a baddie. And that brings us to Generation X number 27, The Last X-Men, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Pacello and Pop Han, inked by Al Vey and Scott Hanna, colored by Marie Javins and Doc Martin, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Also a great Chris Pacello cover, showing Jubilee. This time she's in a straitjacket with this gigantic techno-nonsense power-dampening helmet. Like, it's just all these diodes and tubes and boxes just sticking out. It's ridiculous, and I love it. I did not make this connection until just now, but does that helmet remind you of anything? I mean, it looks kind of like a fucked up Cerebro helmet. I don't know. What were you thinking? No, I'm going to give you a hint. Barry Windsor Smith. Oh, like the Weapon X helmet mm-hmm. they put on Logan. Yeah. Kind of that. I don't know if it's deliberately supposed to evoke that or not, but there's just enough parallel for it to be potentially really interesting. One of the things I really enjoy about doing this podcast is that we immerse ourselves so deeply in X-Men that we probably read way more into these comics than was ever intended, and our experience is better for it. So, 
We're going to start with Jubilee this time. Um, Jubilee is hooked up to a big fancy helmet that apparently creates the illusion that she's alone in a cell, and Bastion is trying to trigger a particularly harsh emotional reaction, which will allow him to get past her rudimentary psychic defenses to all of her secrets, and by extension, the X-Men's secrets. And he's going to do this by messing with her head in, in various ways, trying to convince her of various awful things. And I love the way this starts. I love the way this starts on page one. So it starts with Bastion showing Jubilee the remains of Cyclops' smashed visor and heavily implying that he's dead. And this is such a Bacello page. Like, every time Bacello doesn't do an issue and then comes back for the next one, there's just this giant impact of Bacello-ness. And even with just a close-up on Cyclops' visor, it's still there. Like, there's that intense foreshortening and mix of hard and soft angles angles that Bacello loves. And there's even this little part where one of the smashed-in parts of the Ruby Quartz segment is right over where one of Scott's eyes would have been. And it looks like there are tears still dripping from that part. Is it realistic? Does it make sense? Does it matter? It's awesome. But all Bastion is able to get out of out of this sort of extreme is a memory of a conversation that Jubilee and Scott had at Ileana's funeral, which does not reveal any particular secrets, but is really sweet. It is really sweet, yeah. He just, like, talks to her like a person, like a friend. And it occurs to me, when Jubilee joined the team, she actually knew very few of the other members. Like, she knew Logan, she knew Psylocke. And that was mostly it. So it seems like this must have been one of Jubilee and Cyclops' first real conversations. And Jay, you're a noted Cyclops fan. What do you think? What do you think about the way he talks to her, the way they interact? I think this is great. I think a lot of characters have had variations on the experience of realizing kind of abruptly that Cyclops is a person. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that scene plays out very, very well here. It's great, and it especially works well because, of course, the famous issue of Ilyana's death, Uncanny X-Men number 303, a lot of that is Jubilee being comforted by Jean. So it's kind of cool that she actually gets a chance to talk to Scott as well. Uh, Next up, though, Bastion claims he's killed Bishop, which gets Jubilee's memory of Bishop referring to her as the last X-Men. That is a nice nod, because yeah, when Bishop first showed up way, way, way back in the day, that's how he described her. And... Nobody really ever went into any detail. It seemed like it was just a throwaway little bit of foreshadowing to something we'd never see come to pass. But of course, she remembers that. We remember that. And so when Bastion's like, hey, guess what? I've killed all the X-Men. You're the last one. He's really using that bit of knowledge against her. Like, it's total deception. Bishop is not dead. But Bastion is one smart dude for using that. Let's talk about the art, though, and the way Bacello's drawing these flashbacks. Oh, yeah, it's great, and I think it's most noticeable here. When Michelle is drawing these flashbacks, he's doing his best, it seems, to ape the style of whoever drew those stories before. Or at least to evoke it. Yeah, and he is totally doing his own version of John Romita Jr.'s blocky style here when he shows Bishop meeting the X-Men. Portacio, of course, also drew Bishop, but, like, this is definitely some Romita stuff going on here. And the mix of Romita's style and Bacello's style is great. Everyone's blocky, but, like, it doesn't look weird. It just looks like they're exaggerated in Bacello's preferential style. I would see more of that and enjoy it. It, again, does a really good job of very much staying visibly Bacello while evoking Romita. Yeah, I I love that shit. So, Bastion's assistant, Daria, who, who we met a couple issues ago, is getting increasingly disgusted by his tactics, and she's actually starting to root for Jubilee. By the time Bastion metaphorically shoots himself in the foot and he tips his hand by showing her wolverine being tortured and pleading for mercy and that's what what tips jubilee off to the fact that this is all illusion yeah like she's super upset when she sees wolverine in pain like he's her best friend and then once he begs at that point she just busts out laughing at this point the spell is broken she just calls bastion on all of his bullshit Before I became a mutant, before I learned I was a mutant, I never even knew there was a difference between human and mutant. I thought the idea of somebody hating somebody else for no good reason was stupid. Is this all you can do, Bastion? Is this what the big fight is about? Humans' right to punish, to torture, to hate? Is that what you're fighting for? If it is, 
You can keep your stinking humanity. Hell yeah, Jubilee. As relevant today as it was then. And this jars Bastion, and it jars him enough that the monitors start to pick up his memories instead of Jubilee's. Specifically, what we see is him emerging as a machine from some kind of primordial goo that then rises up his body as skin. It is so creepy. And one of my favorite little bits, and I don't know how much this was Lobdell and how much of this was Richard Starkings and Comicraft, but he's got two little speech bubbles that are connected, and and it just says, at last. One word in each bubble, no punctuation, and that line break and that lack of punctuation and the blank expression on his constructed face— he just feels so inhuman in this. like, But lowercase inhuman. Uh, yes, yes, yes. No Terrigen involved. It is chilling. Like, Bastion's a scary villain because he just has no empathy whatsoever for mutants. But seeing him just built out of metal and synthetic flesh and then forming words that kind of convey an emotion but have all the emotionality removed from them based on the way that they're lettered is so cool. At this moment of vulnerability, Bastion freaks out, punches Jubilee, tells her that his humanity is the only reason she's alive at this point, and turns and tells Daria that they're accelerating the schedule. They're going to move on the X-Men in Hong Kong as soon as they're in the International Flight Zone. And that's going to happen in X-Men 65, which we covered in episode 388. Yeah, things are being referenced back and forth very tightly at this point. Like, to the point where we've actually moved some scenes around in our episode coverage. It's actually really fun. And this last page works so well. Just like the last issue ended in despair as Jubilee was pulled back into the compound, this one is just her lying on her back with this spotlight highlighting her bloody face and the spilled peas and carrots from the meal that she knocked out of Daria's hands all around her, saying up to no one in particular, I showed him. Fucking Jubilee. I was thinking... You know, did it have to be Jubilee that was captured? Is Jubilee the right character for this to be the one who's imprisoned by Bastion and doing her best to rebel? I think absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, she's, you know, vulnerable. It makes sense that he would be able to keep her captive. She's very powerful, but that's not something she usually taps into. But that force of will is just so goddamn strong within her, while she's still expressive enough to be conveying the genuine fear uh, based on what's going on. Like, it works, and also I just love seeing more of a focus on Jubilee. She's such a good character. That's good news, because... After a, a brief detour with Sean and Emma, she's going to she's gonna come back at least one more time in this issue. But first, first Sean and Emma, um, they are focused on finding the kids. So Emma scans Sean's mind looking for any hint that Black Tom might have let slip and instead stumbles across the memory of Krakoa from Giant Size X-Men number one. And Sean pulls out, says he immediately knows where the kids are and just blasts the hell off. Which I'm sort of skimming over because that takes us back to Jubilee, because there is a Cookin' with Jubilee backup strip in this issue by Jim Mahfood. Yeah, it's a single page with a bunch of tiny panels, and it's just it's just Jubilee cooking a pancake and Skin being very impressed and her narrating to him what she's doing. And it's unimportant. It's got nothing to do with continuity. There are no mutant powers. It's just charming as shit. Just one pancake. One gigantic pancake. Uh, the rest of Generation X loves it in the last panel. And we'll actually see more of Jim Mahfood doing Gen X. There's going to be a one-shot not too long after this called Generation X Underground, or maybe it's the Generation X Underground special, that is all Jim Mahfood. He, his work is a lot of fun. I don't know much about him as a person. I've only read a little bit of his other work, but his art is just so rich. It just draws you right in. I fucking love both Girl Scouts and his Tank Girl run. Oh, fun stuff. Uh, before we move on, though, from this issue, I do want to point out that before Sean and Emma have their conversation about Giant Size X-Men number one, we do see that the big pink guy and the big green guy who work for Emma at her estate, uh, Bumpkin is the green one, the pink guy we don't know, um, they're back. We thought they got killed in Generation X number 25, but they're fine. I love them. Possibly just because they're essentially adult versions of Artie and Leech, but I don't know. I just like that there's a big pink guy and a big green guy that just hang out with Emma, and there's no explanation ever. You know, they're cool. They are. That brings us to Generation X number 28. Oh, now I get it. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Chris Buscello, inked by Al Vey, colored by Joe Andriani, and lettered by Richard Starkings. Not Comicraft, weirdly. Huh. He's going rogue. 
Yeah, but like not Rogue. That's a different person. Uh, anyway, this being a Chris Bocello issue, we get some just bizarre, fun stuff. We get a seagull narrating the whole thing about this being an adventure on the high seas. We get all of the pages bordered by the corroded pipes and valves and life rings of, like, a giant ship. So, yeah, this is Gen X. This is just Chris Pacello playing. And playing in a way that fits the plot, but playing. Remember that really shitty Blue Water comic about, um, what's her name, Stephanie Meyer, that was narrated by Dracula for no reason? Oh, yeah, yeah, the author of the the Twilight books got a biography narrated by fucking Dracula. Yeah, so this this made me think of that. Um, From from a train of thought that that started with, seagulls should narrate more comics, to remembering a conversation I had back in the day about how maybe maybe Blue Water's comics would be better if, if Dracula narrated all of them. I don't really have a point here. I just wish that Dracula narrated more comics. No, I think that's entirely reasonable, yeah. Uh, Seagulls are also a good choice, though. Um, This one, you know, explains the comic's premise, uh, in case this is your first issue of Gen X, in which case, dive in, have fun. And I like the Seagulls' take on the current state of uh, mutant sentiment. See, unlike birds, if humans can complicate things, they will. Like many things different from themselves, humans hate mutants. One more reason I'm happy to be a bird. Okay, I've never thought about how seagulls would actually talk, uh, despite having seen Finding Nemo, but no, Jay, you're right, that is exactly how seagulls would actually talk. I'd like to say I've thought about this, but I really haven't. Oh. Uh, So, listeners, I don't know how familiar you are with seagulls. Like, they're very common in some parts of the world, they're not common at all in others. We spent much of our childhoods and adolescences in Florida. They're fucking everywhere there, and seagulls are assholes. Once, when I was seven, one stole a sandwich out of my hand at the beach. It just swooped down and grabbed it and swooped off. Once, when I was a teenager, one stole my identity and committed a lot of federal crimes, and then the fuzz came after me. I'm still in prison. I'm gonna let you dig yourself out of that one, buddy. Also related to seagulls is the fact that in the current run of X-Men Unlimited, the online only, but it's being printed sometimes comic that Marvel's doing, uh, specifically the X-Men Green part, um, Namor and Sauron both talk about how seagulls are assholes. I mean, they don't say it that way, but that's what they mean. It's true. Seagulls are assholes. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, on this seagull-narrated, boat-imagery-bordered, as it turns out, boat, Husk wakes up from a nightmare— Husk wakes up in bed in her bedroom from a nightmare. Right. And as she describes this dream, it's very clear that it's exactly what was going on with the kids a couple issues ago, them being stuck on the open sea. She's thankfully comforted in her on-a-boat bedroom by a very intact-faced Chamber. Chamber, of course, has his lower face and upper chest blown away by his powers. He's always been that way since the powers manifested. He's fine now, and he pulls a guitar and amp out of literally nowhere, like Husky even comments on it, and plays a song to cheer her up. Outside, Sink and Jubilee are tending to the many children in the daycare center that it has been Sink's lifelong dream to run. I love that Sink's lifelong dream is to run a daycare. No, it kind of fits, actually. This remains weird also, though, because there's a bunch of playground equipment, there's some nice tufty grass all around where the kids are playing— And again, this is clearly on a derelict, decaying ship. One of the kids even uh, asks Sink about that. I was just wondering, if you understood, you open up Camp Jubilee in this daycare center you always wanted. On a rusted out, used to be sunken ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I, I hadn't realized that, no. Does it bother you? No. Why? Okay, just asking. So as you might imagine, this is one of those for-the-man-who-has-everything-style stories, where all the characters get their dreams and everything is great, and it's not real, and they don't realize it's not real. Those are super, super overdone. I mean, we actually recently just decided to straight-up skip covering the 1997 X-Men annual that did that, because it's just been done. But this, this right here, is how you do this. You make it immediately clear that things are super wrong, and that even though the characters don't get it, it's obvious to the reader. That kind of sense of unease, of wrongness, works, I think... If not necessarily better, at least uh, more consistently than forcing the reader to play along. One of the details that I really like here is that all of the all of the fantasies that these dreams tap into are extremely 
extremely, extremely prosaic. That's going to be a plot point. But it's something that really differentiates this from the whole man who has everything, where you get, I think, more, maybe slightly more extreme versions of, of idyllic lives. Yeah, that, of course, is the famous Alan Moore Penn Superman story. It's a great story. It's just that that plotline's been done a million times since then. Dressed all classy and watching all of this are M and her brother Marius. Wait, wait, wait. Marius is M-played. Like, the super creepy, gas-mask-clad, spiky, big bad of Gen X. Not here, he's not. No, this is the first time we've ever seen Marius not as M-played. And he's very different. He's just this dude with these neat dreadlocks, sunglasses, a little bit of stubble. He's very well-dressed, as she is. And he asks why, in her fantasy, she chose to be incarnated as she is, when in reality, she... And before he can finish his thought, he's hit with a football thrown by one of, um, Sink's kids. Yeah, it's like the fantasy is preventing him from saying any more. Now... If you notice that there's one mutant missing from these fantasy descriptions, then you counted right. Uh, silhouetted except for dozens and dozens of wraps of rope holding him to the mast, above everything, is skin still melting. And it's terrifying. He just looks like he's in agony. Like, something about the colors. It's not just his gray skin that's melting, but there's this sort of yellow fluid dripping from the edges of it. I don't even know what that's supposed to be. It just makes it look gross and painful, and it works. I really love that Skin is the one of the kids who won't give in to the fantasy. Because in a lot of ways, he's the one of the students who is dealing with the harshest reality in terms of his mutation and also in terms of his, his imminent fate on, on the raft. And at the same time, he's the one who clings to that grounding and clings to reality harder than any of the rest of them. Very much so. And he's also the only one that sees the person behind these fantasies. And that is a muscular guy in a miniskirt short toga who's standing on a rainbow and asking why Skin is being such a downer. I mean, after all, this miniskirt muscle dude raised a shipwreck and gave everybody all their dreams. This is Glorian, the shaper of dreams. He's an old Fantastic Four and Hulk antagonist, and he's really, really complicated. But suffice it to say, he can make people's dreams real-ish, kind of, and he loves doing so. Skin calls bullshit. These are not what his teammates really want. They're just superficial versions of them. As he says, Evan wants to make a difference, not just babysit. Jono wants to be loved for who he is, not who he used to be. Country Mouse there, last thing Paige, wants is to be taken care of, no matter how much she thinks she does. And Monet... Just wants to belong. And as for him, Skin doesn't want any kind of fantasy. He accepts the life he has. He's such a well-developed character, and it makes me sad that he was very much discarded. He was killed for shock value not that long after Generation X ended. But he's really one of the more well-developed characters. I don't know, maybe it's just because he was kind of gross-looking and not every artist could make him look engaging. I'm not sure, but he just didn't really have the staying power that somebody like Monet or Pusk seems to. Glorian is enraged. Everyone wants something, and this is his whole deal. He gives people what they want, damn it, and he will find what Skin wants. And finally he does. And with that, the entire team, fully intact, is teleported to Los Angeles, Skin's hometown. Did this plot twist uh, ring a bell for you? Did it remind you of something? I mean, maybe when the High Evolutionary teleported Colossus and Megan to France, but that was that was a more abrupt moment. Like, this, this at least was sort of built up to, and he was just like, fuck you, you're not part of this plot line. And France. Uh, yes, I, I agree. But it is kind of a weird coincidence that in the same couple of month period, we have big antagonists just teleporting people out of peril into where they wanted to go. Also, France is a fundamentally funnier destination. You know, I've never thought about it, but you're right. France is funnier than L.A. Well done, France. I think. Weirdly, that brings us to the same issue, but like the second half of it done by a completely different creative team with a different title. This is Ye Double Feature. It's written by Scott Lobdell. Okay, he's the same. Penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Paul Neary, colored by Joe Andriani, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, uh, yeah, very, very different art style. Brian Hitch, as you may remember, 
did a lot of the Ultimate Universe. His style is rather Alan Davis-esque, which is to say not at all Chris Bocello-esque. It's still good. It's just kind of weird. It actually reminds me of that one X-Men Space issue we covered recently where another artist took over halfway from Joe Matarera. This is, I think, less jarring than it would be if it were the kids, because this half of the issue mostly focuses on Banshee and Emma Frost. Yeah. At this point, Emma and Penance have caught up with Banshee, who just, you know, flew away last issue, and they're in an aircraft looking for Krakoa. And that's what this half of the issue opens with. Banshee is remembering Giant Size X-Men number one, remembering being one of the new, all-new, all-different team who went to rescue the original five X-Men. Uh, play nerd moment. This is described repeatedly just as Emma's private jet, but it has the exact same silhouette as the X-Men's Blackbird. Huh. I mean, I don't know, maybe she's just using her telepathy to make it look like the Blackbird, because that's what she's familiar with. Maybe in reality, it's a very silly Fisher-Price-style toy plane with a smiley face. I feel like Emma would be too practical-minded to try to keep an SR-71 as a private jet, but I don't know. Hard to say, hard to say. But we talked about how much fun it was to see Chris Pacello ape various other artists, especially John Romita Jr., and here we have Brian Hitch aping uh, Dave Cockrum, I guess, from Giant Size X-Men number one, and it's fun. It's still very clearly Cockrum style, but it's got that level of detailed modernity that Hitch does so well. It's just fun. Fun. It's just so textured while still being so nostalgic. And Banshee and Emma and Penance are flying to where Krakoa used to be. And another kind of great hitch detail is that Penance is sleeping on the plane in, in a sort of cot, and her her the sheet over her and the pillow under her head are both kind of shredded. Yeah, yeah, it's not commented on. It's not even something you would necessarily notice unless you were looking at the panel in detail, but it makes sense. That's something that would happen with her a lot. And seeing her just at peace, clearly a child, like you could just see her sleeping. She's so innocent looking, so young looking, and yet that's something she always has to deal with. Such a wonderful little bit of character development through a tiny bit of art. And Banshee is questioning the entire premise of the school, whether they made a mistake bringing the kids in to serve someone else's dream. Which is a really good question to be asking at this point. It is, yeah. I mean, hell, it was a good question even after the Phalanx Covenant when the school got started in the first place. But Emma disagrees, and Banshee sees that as she disagrees, she's crying. Again, she already lost one group of students who trusted her. The Hellions were killed on her watch. And I love this interaction as she tells Banshee, Funny, isn't it? Two grown adults trying to take care of a handful of kids. We can barely reach out to each other. And Banshee just tells her to come here and hugs her. And after a couple of panels of her seeming to not know what to do, she hugs him back, still crying. And after that, there are these panels of her pulling away, holding his hands but starting to turn away, him looking all awkward, and then her just saying, Thank you. I like this. These are two adults who don't necessarily have that much of an inherent connection, who are just thrown into this job together because they were the two people who were best suited for the job, not because of any dynamic the two of them had. I mean, it is implied early in the story that they've been doing some BDSM on the side. Uh, it, it's possible? I don't know. It's hard to say how much of that is flirtation and how much of that is them just doing their thing. Like, we know they're both kind of freaky, Emma because she's Emma and Banshee because remember him and Moira, but I don't know if I really get that from them. But it's sweet. It's just so sweet. These two grown-ups, like, not necessarily knowing how to person any better than any of the kids do. Yeah, they are both kind of wrecks, and they're they're wrecks who recognize a lot of themselves in each other, I think, in that regard. Wreck gotta recognize. Alas, when they get to where they were going, where Krakoa used to be, Krakoa isn't there, which, I mean, makes sense. Like, it was shot into space by Polaris at the end of Giant Size X-Men number one. Also, and even before then, it was the island which walks like a man, which is to say, doesn't stay in one place. Uh, yeah, that's true. It wasn't the island that just sits there and looks around from its fixed position like a man. Although, I guess there are a lot of men that do that. I mean, I do that sometimes. I'm kind of lazy sometimes. The island that chills like a man. <laughs> the island that Netflixes and chills like a man. Yeah, you're making it weird. I mean, it's Krakoa. It's already weird. You know some of the stuff that goes on on that island in the current Dawn of X era? Yes. Yes, yes, I suppose you do. They do see the derelict empty ship that Glory and the Dream Shaper raised. It's, like, still there, even though Gen X got teleported off of it. 
but no kids and no sign of kids and no signal of kids that the, any of the computers can find. There is one signal they do pick up, though, and that is Cyclops sending out a distress call from the pages of X-Men number 65. And obviously that one won't go well. The X-Men get their asses kicked, but Banshee and Emma figure, well, we have no leads on the kids, but we do have leads on the X-Men who need help right now, and off they go. As well they should. That is the responsible decision. We get one last glimpse of Jubilee at the end of this issue. Daria, of course, is Bastion's young assistant, and Jubilee recognizes how young she is. I mean, Jubilee figures this girl can't be much older than her, and here she is working for this genocidal monster. Worst internship ever. Right? Daria keeps trying to get Jubilee to eat. Jubilee's still on a hunger strike, basically. And when she comes in yet again to try to feed Jubilee once it's been almost a week, frickin' zap. Jubilee has been playing possum and waiting for the chance to blast out of her straitjacket using her powers to overpower Daria to get the hell out of there. But unfortunately for her, blasting Daria triggers something, and thousands of mechanical mutant-hunting wasps fly out of Daria's eyes, nose, and mouth, ending the issue. So that's a whole thing, and sure enough, the next time we come back to Gen X, we are officially, cover treatment and all, going to be in Operation Zero Tolerance. For me, this arc basically is Operation Zero Tolerance. Like, I know it's not on the cover, but I can't imagine going into OZT without reading these issues. Like, all the stuff with Jubilee is just critical to it, even if the stuff with the kids and with Banshee and Emma aren't necessarily. Yeah, it should be classified as OZT, I think. I'm actually really curious. I don't have any of the physical collections of Operation Zero Tolerance, but I wonder if they do include stuff like this. We should look that up. Yeah, I likewise don't have the collections, so... Still, hell of a strong trio of issues. At this point, Chris Bichello's still on Gen X, Scott Lobdell's writing is going really well, it feels consequential while still respecting the characters and their personalities and their development. Like, this is the book, if not at its best, pretty far up there, I'd say. And with that, you've got questions. Probable Cause, that's cause with a W, asks on Twitter, Have we seen Strong Guy on Krakoa? Your recent episode about him made me wonder if he would go through the Crucible to get his body reset to pre-constant pain condition. We have seen Strong Guy on Krakoa. Uh, for the most part, he was just in the background and in minor scenes here and there, but he also is the co-lead along with Multiple Man in a six-part story starting with issue number 21 of X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic. And I feel like X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic and all of the Infinity Comics on Marvel Unlimited don't get enough love, so I try to mention them whenever I can, because they're really, really good. Um, Marvel's not paying me to say this. Marvel doesn't pay me anything. This podcast would have major ethical issues if Marvel paid us anything. Uh, But, point being, um, yeah, he's a co-lead of a really fun story there. Quite enjoyable. I recommend checking that out. Uh, The X-Men Green story in X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comics... Uh, which is about Nature Girl and some other characters doing terrible things, is actually shockingly excellent. I think they're reprinting that one in print, too. Um, as is Jay's Captain America comic. As is Kelly Thompson's It's Jeff comic, which is about Jeff the Baby Land Shark. Let's be fair. Jeff is the best comic there. I mean, arguably, It's Jeff is the best comic, period. I think we gave it a Corbeau last time around or something. It deserved it. Yeah, so yeah, Strong Guy's very much still around, which is good, because where we left him at the end of New Mutants Dead Souls was in a very bad and very techno-organic place. As for the second question, I don't know, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, the Crucible is a ritual that people can go through, the mutants can go through on Krakoa, where they duel somebody to the death, they die in ritual combat, and then when they're reborn, they're reborn without, like, problems that they had before. It was specifically for depowered mutants, right? It's mostly for depowered mutants. It has been used or attempted to be used for other things as well. So yeah, if Strong Guy died in combat, in theory he could be reset to a point before he was in constant pain. But here's the thing. That started when Strong Guy's powers first manifested when he was hit by a car as a teenager. So the onset of his mutation and the onset of that pain were kind of the same thing, like Chambers' powers blowing off half his face. Given that... Krakoa seems to see those mutant powers as not exactly being disabilities, but just being a part of a person, which is kind of cool. I don't think they would bring Guido to a point where his powers hadn't manifested yet, even if that meant they could manifest in a safer fashion. 
Yeah, and self-image seems to be some part of the resurrection protocols or process. Um, see, for instance, Cyclops getting, you know, resurrected without control of his optic blasts. Exactly, yeah. That said, it wouldn't surprise me if Forge or somebody rigged something up so that Guido's in less pain all the time, but everything else is pretty much the same. But uh, nothing canonically stated that I know of. Asimov Fangirl asks on Tumblr, In Moira McTaggart's sixth life, Logan looks more or less the same after 1,000 years. But in Old Man Logan, he looks quite old after 50 years. Do you think there's a psychological aspect to his healing factor that slows his aging? Or is it simply creators affecting his look and age according to the story? I think it's the latter, but in both the cases that you mentioned, there is actually some narrative justification for it. Specifically, in Powers of X number 6, Lo Logan and Moira are in a zoo, and their keeper mentions they've been depending on each other to stay alive for 1,000 years. So there's obviously some kind of reciprocal exchange going on there that presumably is also keeping Logan from aging. Um, and in Old Man Logan, his healing factor is specifically declining. And it's never really clarified whether that's just an, an internal sort of automatic process or due to some kind of exter external tampering. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with alternate timelines. Like, you can have changes that make a lot of sense. So-and-so got assassinated, so the future changed, or whatever. And then you can have stuff that's just different, just because. Maybe it's psychological, maybe the world just works a little differently, or the healing factor works a little differently. I don't know. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. And today, the mic goes to... Sexy Banshee. All this reminiscent about me start with the X-Men fighting Krakoa has got me in a nostalgic mood. And to be honest, a frisky one. Twas long before I met me dear Moira McTaggart and got freakier than a swinger's trad night at me old local pub. But the things us new X-Men got up to after that first adventure? Ha, I can still smell the brimstone of Nightcrawler teleporting from partner to partner. Feel Wolverine's rough and Thick body hair against me, and hear Storm dramatically describing every erotic sensation she was feeling. But mostly, I remember the sight of John Bileski, wearing that colorful new outfit Xavier designed, and then wearing less and less of it as the night went on, leaving a trail of discarded spandex around the mansion like a rainbow leading to one of me castle's leprechauns, pots of gold. John, twas an honor to be a coin in that pot, and a memory this old gent shall not soon forget. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Operation Zero Tolerance continues in the pages of X-Force. I mean, you can use it as a, as a tag you want, if you want. You can, you can use a tag if want you as that thing, words I can. Makes sense to me. Yep. <laughs>